Do you think that there's a tendency to maybe reduce truth to the interesting in certain cultural discussions? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely this push to like, it's not important to say true things, it's important to say things that will get the appropriate outcomes. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden, sometimes Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Paladori. And I never know what Austin's going to say as his name is at this point. I don't either. It's I, a curveball uh, every time. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I still haven't figured out how to brand myself, you know, but that's also probably why I'm never going to be a blue check on Twitter or Insta because I just, <laughs> I can't streamline that Wait, shit. You're yeah. not a blue check? I, I could have sworn that you were. No, I'm not. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I mean, if, if they offered it, if, wait, if they offered it to you, would you reject it out of solidarity with the plebs? Oh God! This is like a ring of Gaiji's morals. Listen, man. If I had, if I had, I would be a, I would be a villain. I'd be a super villain. Okay, let's just be real. If I had superpowers, I would be a villain. Okay, like it's a good thing that people. It's a good thing that middle class white boy yuppies don't get supreme power sometimes. You know, because because <laughs> we just we wouldn't know how to handle it because we are not. We're just. We're enculturated in all the wrong ways. So as much as I could say that my moral fiber would somehow, you know, occasion me to to reject it, I just don't know if I have that kind of willpower, Troy. That's actually pretty good that you know that. Like you've read your Plato, you get it. You, you know yourself well enough. <laughs> yeah. I've watched Lord of the Rings. I'm the Smeagol <laughs> character. Okay. I get it. I know what happened. I know the story. I know the outcome to this one. Um... Yeah, so this week I'm stoked because it's kind of like a, a fun article, but it's also an academic article. We're going to be talking about an article by Kieran Healy, who's a sociologist, and it's called Fuck Nuance. That's the, this is an academic article called Fuck Nuance. Let me, let me say that again. This is a peer-reviewed academic article with the title of Fuck Nuance, and he actually says fuck a few times in the article, and it makes me so happy. Because I want to say stuff like that in articles. That's how you know you have <laughs> academic privilege and and shit is you can you can yeah. submit an article about that. I I couldn't do that. No, no. If I if I I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah, I think you're right. Like Graeber can make a book called Bullshit Jobs and and do stuff like that. But that's book like is a different. popular yeah. book too. Because so. like there's peer review, right? And so yeah, but it but it was based off an article. But it was based off an article. Yeah. You know, so, but not, it wasn't a peer reviewed like journal article. It was more like, a oh, no, yeah, I'm talking about the, so. the fuck nuance essay. It's P, it's blindly peer reviewed, right? But like, mm. th there's obviously ways someone knew that, okay, is this a serious person who's writing this article called fuck nuance where one of the keywords is fuck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the I'm, putting all, is fuck, I'm putting all my money great. in the fact that this was not blindly peer reviewed. <laughs> Yeah, probably. Um, but anyway, I think the title of the article tells you what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> so again, it's actually brilliant because it is so on the nose and it's so clear. It's not like one of those like really long uh, titles that's like, um, 
you know, from being to nothingness and back around to becoming through the opulent eye of the degenerated culture of the West. Subtitle, Oswald Spangler's <laughs> a leftist critique or whatever. And it's like looking into the future yeah, or whatever the fuck it is, right? Like this is this is just very clear. Fuck nuance. Uh, and then let's just see what he gets. And it's it's an interesting little article that isn't just like a provocative piece, although it is. It's a little bit of like goading his colleagues or uh, across his discipline. But as a sociologist, there's a lot of interesting things that I think we could take as people who are more inclined towards the philosophical side of thinking um, that we can take from this as well. So I think it'll be kind of a fun conversation to have. Yeah, yeah I'm dude. really curious to hear your thoughts on it because I mean, obviously we've, we've done like 170 of these, so I don't remember everything. But I was I was more flummoxed by this than anything we've done in a long time. Um, just as far as not necessarily understanding the essay, although they're partly that too, but just what to get out of it. Um, I don't know what to think about it, and um, I have a lot of questions. So yeah, I'm curious to see what what you think about it. Yeah, and considering that if he's critiquing sociology for a tendency towards the preponderance of nuance, bro. Come over to come over to philosophy. Yeah, that's definitely part of my concern. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's let's talk about the tendency towards nuance <laughs> as a as like a virtue in itself. So anyway, we'll we'll get into that on the other side of the shitty minute. But of course, um, we got to do just a little housekeeping just to remind you. You can follow us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. And if you got some pennies that you can uh, spare and you dig the show and you want to support us, please go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. That's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. As I've said before, we have a, a new producer that we've had on board. And uh, the more money we make, the more money she makes. Um, so that would be great if you can uh, help us out and help Maddie out um, as well. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Owls, I'm sorry, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. All right. First, what we got to do before we get into fuck nuance is we got to do the shitty minute. This is the segment of the show where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's pissing us off. So, Troy, what's got you by the gonads at the moment? All right. So as listeners will know, and as you know, Austin, um, I have to restrict myself from making every single shitty minute about basketball. And so I tend to save the basketball uh, related content for the peaks of the season, right? So the finals, uh, maybe the all-star yeah. game, some especially egregious moment where basketball culture crosses over into mainstream culture, right? Uh, and it's the finals right now, <laughs> so I feel vindicated. Um, I'm allowed to talk about basketball, even yes. though there's not necessarily a peak content cycle happening right now. Um, so the finals are occurring, and one interesting kind of subplot in the whole thing is that, uh, for those who don't know, the uh, Warriors and the Celtics are the two teams in the finals. And the most sort of outspoken personality in the series by far, maybe in the whole NBA, is Draymond Green of the Warriors. And he has started yes. a podcast um, fairly recently, <laughs> and he actually is recording podcasts like in his home or hotel room, depending upon if they're on the home or the road, um, after the games, like just recording a podcast, talking about the game. And he's, he said things like, as he's been hmm. criticized for, um, airing, not necessarily dirty laundry, but, you know, talking, um, in a, in a, in a way that's revealing more than the average player does about the inner workings of the team during a time when the microscope is, you know, all the magnifying glasses on them. He's been criticized for that, especially as, as he's had some bouts of not playing very well. 
Um, and the teams, you know, lose some games. He gets blamed for it since there's this you know, unique thing happening where he's talking about it after the game, uh, even when they lose. And um, he said things like, some silly things like, uh, he takes his podcasting very seriously. And so he feels like he owes it to the listeners in the same way he owes his efforts to his teammates. Even when things are going poorly, <laughs> he's not doing well. Making an analogy there that would make you cringe. Um, and so my, my shitty minute basically is just people complaining about Draymond Green podcasting, but also Draymond Green <laughs> podcasting. Uh, not not because he <laughs> yeah. shouldn't do it or it's revealing too much dirty laundry or um, it's breaking the, um, the fourth wall or whatever, you know, what is inappropriate or any of that. But just can you imagine being a multimillionaire, probably a hundreds of millionaire NBA player who's going to be in the Hall of Fame and is considered the greatest defensive player of your generation. And, and you want to record a podcast? Like, what are you doing, bro? Hmm, hmm. It's podcasting. This is podca- mm. Podcasting is the ultimate, like, you can't do, so you podcast. But they used to say, you, you can't do, so you teach. No, you can't do, so you podcast. <laughs> whoa hold on <laughs> hold on no <laughs> uh, uh no we, we're different because we bullshit with impunity right so we have a different ethic but for most people okay yeah yeah i i consider this as my doing <laughs> you know uh performative in the correct way and like the original but way exactly um, yeah i, I just right. can't imagine being able to do that being able to just dunk a basketball period if i could dunk a basketball easily I don't think I would do anything else. Whether even if I couldn't be in the NBA, I would just spend every day going to the gym and and dunking the ball until I couldn't do it anymore because my knees gave out. Knees gave out. I would not be podcasting. That's not true because I would podcast with you still. So that's that's special. But Draymond doesn't have someone yeah. like you in his life, as far as I know. He just podcasts by himself. Yeah, he's yeah he's podcasting by himself and just talking talking with other people that come on and just like talking just little idle chatter. Little idle basketball chair. Yeah. So I'm not being totally serious. No one should care if you podcast. It doesn't have any effect on anything. And it's I'm not gonna listen to it, but I'm sure that it's entertaining and it provides a lot of content for people to talk about on social media, which is fun. Because I know. I keep seeing on fucking like ESPN about like, oh, he had gotten to some beef with Kevin Durant. And I'm like, actually, if you listen to what he said. It was uh, he just made some remarks about Steph uh, and Kevin Durant, and then Kevin Durant commented on twitter and then they had like a really respectful back and forth <laughs> you know i'm like there's no drama here guys why are you trying to make this into a beef you know it was like two guys who had a differencing a difference of opinion and yeah i know there's like a history of drama but they're fucking culture vultures are just circling looking for anything that could potentially perceive be perceived as like dying flesh and then they're just going to attack it and rip it apart until our brains are fucking fried and well, I'm already, we're already there. We're pulverized into like just nothingness. Um, so Dude, I don't know. You know what? I don't know. I changed just... my mind. No shitty minute for dream on green. It's actually awesome that as you're saying, the culture vultures are out there trying to dig up any sort of dirt they can out of the podcast and then tur- turn yeah, it into a, you know, a hot take for the day or whatever. And he's just like, I don't care. I'm going to yeah. do it anyway. And I'm going to win the championship doing it. I don't give a shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I do have a question though. Can you imagine, can you imagine if 
he was on Kobe Bryant's <laughs> team or on Michael I mean, Jordan's uh, team. Well, wait a minute. In the finals. In the you, final, you say that, right? <laughs> you say that, but remember, run our test was on Kobe's team that won a championship. And we should not forget, mm-hmm. much more egregious, Dennis Rodman, Rodman was on Jordan's team. Dennis Rodman yeah. went to a wrestling match in the middle of the finals and wrestled with professional wrestlers <laughs> in the middle yeah. of the finals. So that that's a whole different yeah. story and is also the, the most awesome thing that an NBA player has done. That did involve basketball. <laughs> Fuck. I just can't imagine. I just imagine like Kobe punching him, <laughs> you know, um, and being like, no, man, this is not we're, we're winning. We're winning a championship here. Fuck your po- do it after after we win and we wrap it up. You podcast until your brain falls out. That's fine. But for now, yeah, I'm curious. No. Like, I agree with you that that seems like the kind of thing Kobe would do. Um, and, and I wonder, like, if he had teamed up with another Hall of Famer and that guy was a guy like Draymond Green who no one questions his work ethic and intensity and stuff like that, if he'd be cool with it. Or if it would still be like, no, I'm the leader here. I dictate what happens. I don't know. Mm. I mean, he did have Shaq for a while, right? And there was tension. Yeah, but this, again, because it was very easy to to question Shaq's motivation and work ethic. <laughs> the guy who said That's that, <laughs> uh, who would get a surgery right before the season started because he wanted to recuperate on, on the... Like on the dime, right? Make money while recuperating. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he was just doing load management, dude. Now that's normal. Yeah, I mean, that's a different use of the term, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he, but that's what he was, you know, he was doing kind of the same sort of thing. He was like, I'm just not going to play 82 games. I'm going to play 67 games this season. No, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, Shaq, if Um, anybody had a load to manage, it was Shaq. He's a big dude. Yeah, so what uh, what are you thinking about the finals? Did the Warriors wrap it up in six? I mean, by the time this podcast comes out, the series will be over, I believe, most likely. So we'll know. I have no idea, dude. This series has been kind of wild and crazy. Every, I think every game has been hmm. won by double digits, but it's felt close, right? Like the teams feel yeah. evenly matched, even though every game is basically a blowout, which is weird. Hmm. Mm-mm. Yeah, but it's only been it's been like one point games at halftime every single game. And then it's like a big third quarter or a big fourth quarter. Right. Or a big thor- but big third by one side and then a, a bigger fourth yeah. by the other side. Right. Like what was the one fourth quarter where the Celtics, they outscored like 40 to 15 or something. Yeah, I mean, like it, was that? Game, it was game one. I think um, when that happened because they were they were getting beat. Back, yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. And I think all the games have been close at halftime. Um, like even, even this one, like the end of the third quarter, the last one, you know, Jordan Poole hit that, you know, buzzer beater at the end of the third to give them a, to give the Warriors a one point lead. And then of course they end up winning by, you know, 10 or 12 or whatever it was in the fourth. But yeah, they have all been really intense in the early stages. And then it's just the final kind of couple minutes where they pull away. So. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been, it's been, yeah. I think my favorite thing about it is like, you think of, okay, so the NBA finals is going to be the sort of paragon of elite play, right? Like the best of the best, you're going to see just seamless, beautiful basketball. It's the complete opposite, right? Because when you Mm. have, and and this is even magnified in this series because it's the two best defensive teams in the league, which is usually, usually it's the better defensive, the teams who get to the finals are better defensively than they are offensively. Not always, but usually. And so... Mm. Once you have a team figured out defensively, it's much, much harder to score. And the scoring has been very low 
right, compared to the regular season, even for a team as high-powered as, as Golden State is offensively. So it's just ugly, brutish. Guys are like, you could, they're, they're gassed because they're playing way more minutes in the regular season. It's like a, um, it's just ruination happening, right, on the court, which is its own kind of like, mm. this is not beautiful basketball necessarily, but it's like, it's like a triumph of will happening here. There's always a sense in which whoever wins, there's some degree of like they willed up there. Right. Not all is obviously skill plays the biggest part there, but I appreciate that. I watch a lot of basketball. I see a lot of beautiful basketball. That's for the regular season. It's smashed mountains yeah. in the playoffs. That's how it should be. Is um, let's say golden state wins. Uh, Boston could still win. Right. But let's say golden state wins. Um, is this championship because it's so gritty and it's going to be hard fought and like in the muck in the mud and like I've seen a lot there's a lot of fucking like there the the refs seem to be letting them play a bit too right like there's been a lot of physical physical mm-hmm. interaction yeah. right um do you think that this championship it's going to be very different than when the warriors won their couple with Kevin Durant which was just like how do you stop these guys from scoring yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like it was smooth basketball and fast and spread out and slick and showy and just, yeah, it was beautiful. This, do you think this one will have like a different meaning for the team because it's much more hard fought and because Steph isn't viewed as like a physical force, you know, cause he's a little bit smaller and his, his body's a little, like his, his frame is a little bit um, smaller than somebody like a LeBron or, um, uh, you know, somebody even like, uh, like, a, like a Jalen Brown or something like that, who is like, or Marcus Smart, who they're, they're known for being kind of a little bit on the tougher side, right? Uh, Steph is more like a finesse player, shoot from 35 feet away from the hoop, you know? Um, do you think this will mean something different for them as a, as yeah, a I don't know. I think a lot of that's going to come from retrospect, right? H- how good are these Celtics? Because they were a team that was like 500 through the first two months of the season. And then they just went gangbusters mm. and had a historically great last like 50 games. So they only won about 50, 52 games, like not a, not a spectacular record by any means. Um, but everyone knew that going into the playoffs, they were one of the favorites because of how well they had played for the last several months of the season. Um, so how good is this team? Like if they never get to another finals again, then I don't think that this one would be that would be remembered in that, in that way. But if the Celtics team ends up going to like four or Mm. five finals in the next eight years, you know, then that would be like, wow. Yeah. They, um, that was a huge win for the, an older warriors team who's, you know, three best players are all worse than they were, five years ago when they were at their peak. That's pretty rare for you to be on the mm. down, your three best players on the downswing of their career and you still make the finals and maybe win. So a lot of people have compared the Celtics team to the 2004, 2005 Pistons that have that incredible all-time defense. Um, Chauncey Billups, Ben Wallace, Rasheed Wallace, Rip Hamilton, Tayshaun Prince, those guys. Yeah, they tore through the Lakers in the finals. Uh, a much more talented Lakers team. Yeah. In 04. So if, if these Celtics are yeah. like that, then yeah, this would be a super impressive win, but I don't know that we know that yet. We'll kind of have to see historically how it mm. works out for them. Mm. Yeah. 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 That'll be fun. Well, for all of you theory nerds out there who hate our basketball talk, <laughs> does anybody hate sorry. our basketball talk? I don't know that we've ever gotten a, an ad that hates our basketball talk. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Let us know if you enjoy or hate our basketball talk. Actually, don't encourage us. Just 
Don't. Just let it. Just actually don't. Because <laughs> if you encourage us, then Troy's every shitty minute in Sticky Leaves will be about basketball from now on. And I'm here for it, but I'm not sure that y'all are. So. I guess I guess now <laughs> is the time for me to announce that I'm starting Owls at Dawn After Dark, where the companion podcast, where I just talk about whatever Austin said in the podcast that was released earlier that day. And I bring on guests to talk about what Austin said. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right sweet well um let's jump into the main segment here and talk about nuance yeah. shall we okay cool so the as i said at the top of the show the article is by kieran healy who is a sociologist um at duke university and or at least was at the time of the publication which was in 2017 so uh, um i imagine i i believe kieran is um quite established in the field i'm not as familiar with uh, Kieran's work, but um, but uh, I know that he is um, somebody that's been around for a while and has produced a lot in the field. But as someone who's not a sociologist by training, I'm just not as familiar with. Probably, with work. I mean, probably. So most, anyway, really quick, uh, the probably time was most people fuck, know of him because he became like a must follow during COVID. From what I remember, he was uh, delivering a lot of important content about COVID spread and stuff like that in the early days. From what I remember, oh, that's really? when I first heard about him, yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. I heard about him from oh, this really? article. Um, and yeah. And um, so I just kind of, one, I just love the uh, title of it. And I actually do think there's something really interesting here to consider. So essentially, the the broad strokes of the argument are that in the field of sociology, which we can kind of broaden it out into other uh, other disciplines as well. But in the field of sociology, that nuance is typically conceived as being a sort of inherent or presumed virtue of sociological approaches. And Kieran wants to, uh, we'll say Healy, since I don't know the guy on the first <laughs> name, um, Healy wants to talk about how um, that is not the case and that we should actually investigate the virtue or lack of virtue of nuance and the tendencies that um, it uh, it leads to, and, and it falls into some traps, right? Uh, three traps that it falls into. And the three traps are what he calls the fine-grained trap, um, which is basically that um, nuance is um, kind of like the tendency towards, uh, he says, ever more detailed, merely empirical descriptions of the world. So he calls this the nuance of the fine grain. And it's a rejection of theory masquerading as increased accuracy. So now as somebody who, for me personally, as somebody whose research has really bridged over into the social sciences in recent years, I can say that I've seen this a lot, right? Um, sometimes uh, it's referred to as like the difference between familiarity and defamiliarity, whereas familiarity is praised as being like almost a good in itself because of its nuance towards the fine-grained empirical descriptions of the world. Whereas defamiliarity is sometimes used as like theory construction, right? Which is supposed to like pull us out and kind of like pull the ground out from underneath us and challenge our presuppositions, right? Um, but you definitely see this in sociological theory, this this tendency towards an ever more detailed, fine-grained empirical um, orientation in into the world. So that's the first trap that this kind of like maybe fetishization of nuance falls into. Um, the second is what he calls the nuance of the conceptual framework, which is the ever more extensive expansion of some theoretical system in a way that effectively closes it off from rebuttal or disconfirmation by anything in the world. 
I think this is one that we could probably be like, yeah, this is a little more familiar to our um, terrain, um, dealing with like the ever conceptual refinement of the apparatus of theoretical conjecture, right? And essentially what it does is it makes it so that you always have like an escape, right? You see this within like critiques of Marx, right? Where it's like, but Marxism as this uh, impenetrable conceptual framework always has a way out to vindicate itself from any possible critique, right? It's like, ah, you didn't either read this enough or there's this one footnote in the this or there's this sense in which it's so large as a conception of like a, a, a an actual totality that therefore it's able to incorporate any sort of possible um, dissonance that might be, um, that might be um, uh, in, incorporated or might be uh, conceived. And so... Um, that's the kind of nuance of conceptual framework. And then the third is one that I kind of just find enjoyable, but he calls it the nuance of the connoisseur. And this is basically a form of self-congratulatory symbolic violence where uh, he says that it, it, it manifests by a sensitivity to nuance that is a manifestation of one's distinctive ability to grasp and express the richness, texture, and flow of social reality itself. The nuance of the connoisseur, right? So it's somebody who um, kind of self-valorizes and views themselves as an individual with impeccable taste, an individual who is able to walk through the world like a flaneur and observe everything and make these really detailed and rich and robust observations about things because of their like honed skills, right? And this is a sort of like fetishization of um, of the self, if you will, right? And one's ability um, to uh, to kind of um, suss things out. So these are the traps, and what it leads to, he says, is bad theory, um, uninteresting theory, and theory that really has no practical. Uh, impact on the field. So that's kind of the broad strokes of the article. But Troy, what did you think about uh, that kind of basic framing of the argument? Yeah, so a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, well, first, yeah. I, I just want to say there's an important quotation about actually existing nuance from the opening section or two that I wanted to bring up because I thought it was a good sort of specification uh, maybe even a nuanced specification of what the actual phenomenon that he's pointing to is. And he says, uh, actually existing nuance is the act of making some bit of theory richer or more sophisticated by adding complexity to it, usually by way of some additional dimension, level, or aspect. But in the absence of any strong means of disciplining or specifying the relationship between the new elements and the existing ones. So, what I think is so interesting, and this is like my favorite section of this paper, is the, the principled section. So he says that like there's there's three yeah. reasons why we should oppose nuance: the, the principled reason, the um, strate aesthetic, aesthetic reason, and reason. The strategic reason. And so the the principled one I thought was the the best part of the paper, and that part that I I felt like was the maybe not the clearest, but the the most like uh, uh, stoking to thought for me, and how it applies to philosophy. Yeah. Uh, and that seems to me like most associated with the fine gradedness critique. Um, and so what I'm wondering mm -hmm. is, so in that definition of actually existing nuance, there's the act of adding complexity or richness, right? So adding new elements to a theory than what already exists, but not specifying the relations between the theory and the new elements. So it's like a, there's two movements there, right? One is adding the new elements, but then mm -hmm. not 
specifying the relationship between the new elements and the theory as it exists at the time, right? And there's this interesting dichotomy mm. between the fine-grainedness, the critique of fine-grainedness and the critique of conceptual frameworks, right? Because it's almost like they're, they're almost opposites in a certain way, right? Where fine-grainedness is about trying to remove as much abstraction as possible, right? So it's like abstraction is bad, theory is bad. We, we have to do some of it, but we should try to minimize it as much as possible. Like get that down to like, you know, one pack a day of abstraction, Right. Don't do any more than mm. that, or your theoretical lungs are gonna, you know, get black lung or whatever. Um, yeah. So abstraction is just seen negatively, and that struck me as a really important point because that's something that you see in a lot of philosophy too nowadays, where so much of it's about concreteness. You want to be as concrete as possible. Abstraction is the bad thing philosophers do. That's like you know, uh, your continental philosophers. They're all about abstraction, and so Anglo-American philosophy is about hmm. removing as much abstraction and getting right to the concrete thing, to the things themselves, or whatever, whatever the motto might be. Um, and then the conceptual frameworks um, kind of nuance is almost like the reverse, where you take the abstract elements of a theory and you just totalize all the concrete things with that theory. Right? Yeah. So I was almost wondering, he never says this, yeah. but it almost strikes me as like, there's three levels of abstraction at play here. There's the least possible abstraction, which is like everything's as concrete as possible, which basically is like listing all the facts of the world. And that's kind of like logical positivism, right? The classic origins of analytic mm. philosophy were, what if we just had a bunch of facts, like all the facts in the world, and then put them all in a big tub? Like that's knowledge, right? <laughs> um, so that's like, mm. that's very much the origins of analytic philosophy. And it, you know, that's obviously been critiqued to death and is no longer a dominant paradigm, but it still persists even as it's been rejected um, in part. And so, and then the other side is like the most abstraction, which is, you know, everything concrete gets subsumed into some, you know, ab abstract uh, theoretical maxim or axiom that you have to start with, right? And so is this really a defense of like, the, the third kind of abstraction, the middle level of abstraction, which, I mean, I'm not trying to specify that, but that strikes me as like where the interesting philosophical work at least gets done, right? It's not logical positivism mm. with just a whole bunch of facts because you have to understand how those facts relate to one another, right? Um, and that there are really no independent facts. I think mean, that's true also. Right? It's only as a sort of system or a whole, Um and not in the Quinean way for anybody who's going to at me that they're a Quinean about that. Um, and then there's like the, obviously the sort of ultra abstraction, which is unhelpful for a number of reasons. The kind of dogmatism you were talking about with Marxism seems like the, some Marxists uh, or some forms of Marxism, that seems like that kind of abstraction, right? So like, is there a third middle kind of abstraction that's in between those? And like, what, what does that look like? Is it something like you're dealing with determinant cases and you're going back and forth between um, a theoretical paradigm and then concrete cases. And like there's a dialectical progress between them, right? As you further refine the theory, looking at more concrete things and the concrete things get adjusted by the theory and back and forth. And like key is like you're, you're achieving that middle ground of abstraction if both the abstract side and the concrete side are open to, open to alteration via each other in that dialectical mm. progress. I don't know. That seems like a really abstract way of, of, <laughs> of scheming out this yeah. relationship. But that's what I was thinking um, and trying to figure out how this um, 
how these critiques that he's leveling against nuance apply to philosophy. The thing that I really latched onto was the threefold of um, kind of like good or bad theory, interesting and uninteresting theory, and then um, whether it had like practical import on the field, right? And I think so for me, I take this as like he's first and foremost, I think he's like launching a grenade into the discipline, right? And he's saying, hey, this tendency towards nuance is disguised as some sort of just inherent virtue that is that is unacknowledged and that is presumed by always. He has these list of things that made me laugh because I'm like, oh, shit. I say I say those things a lot, <laughs> like, but it's both and, isn't it really I thought, both I thought and? Said or, that, yeah. uh, but aren't these two things? Yeah, or like, aren't these things mutually constitutive? I'm like, I'm the king of talking about co-constitutive relations, <laughs> right? Uh, so, so I was definitely uh, I, I felt the harpoon come at me. Um, but the thing that I found so important was to this kind of like three this this threefold criteria of like bad, in, uh, bad, uninteresting and uninfluential theory. And so I feel like the tendency towards nuance that he's most concerned with, um, kind of pulling out for a second is, is that, that it leads to bad theory, right? Theory that, um, just is not adequate to, um, actually the case at hand. And the reason it isn't is because it's so concerned. And I think this is probably more directed towards the fine grain. The reason is because um, it can't pull itself out. Like it can't, it can't scope back, you know, it gets caught, it, it gets caught in, in the trees sort of thing, rather than being able to see the larger picture. And, um, and then it valorizes itself like, no, but we're doing really like detailed research here, you know, like this is the way forward, you know, and it's kind of to the neglect of starting to ask the bigger questions, the larger theoretical questions, the abstract questions, the metaphysical questions, maybe even. And so there's there's like a real short-sightedness in certain tendencies within the social sciences um, because of that. And so that just leads to like bad, bad theorizing. It just leads to bad work, right? Um, because it's uh, microscopic or it uh, is totally exclusionary as like a, as like a prior decision, because only those things that are going to continue towards this fine grained empirical approach to the world are valorized. And it's just kind of unquestioned, which I think actually then relates to, it kind of leads to a type of dogmatism again, right? It's like, um, like Graham Harmon talks about the difference between undermining and overmining objects, right? The undermining is like trying to reduce everything down to like the like simplest parts like atoms or quarks or whatever it is. And then overmining is like, you know, the opposite of that, which um, talks about like trying to uh, encapsulate everything into a single grand world picture, you know, that everything is mind or everything is spirit or something along those lines, right? Um, and so you overmine and undermine. And I feel like they both tend to they both, oddly enough, are a type of reduction. And I think that might help us kind of understand the difference between like the fine-grained approach and then maybe the conceptual new, uh, framework approach to nuance is that those are like the undermining and the overmining tendencies, right? But both of them are oddly enough reductions. They just, uh, in a different way, you either reduce things down to like the simple approach, which is just, oh no, it's just like little bits of data, facts, man, just give me the facts, you know? Um, whereas the other one is like just pure intellect, right? Just give me, it's all about the ideas. It's all about the grand system building or something like that, right? And um, I, I think that both of them can tend towards a type of like dogmatism, 
And I think for me that 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 is like important to understand, and that leads to bad bad theory, right? Um, and then I think the uninteresting theory is that like when you do that. You're not actually like inciting thought. You're not actually instigating thought further, right? Because you close it down. It's it's essentially a type of foreclosing reduction. And so because of that, you don't stimulate thought. Like obviously people who listen to this podcast know that I've been quite influenced by the work of Gilles Deleuze. And in particular, like his musings on thought, indifference and repetition are so interesting to me because thought is an encounter for Deleuze. It's not something that is reducible to knowledge in representational terms, right? But it's something that requires a shock, right? Some sort of like, um, some sort of scission or fissure in your knowledge apparatus. And that, that, that requires an encounter with something that is not always already conceptualizable in the way that we typically think of, of conceptualizing, right? Of being able to like make a set or to formalize something. And so for me, I think that that's also interesting as well to consider because what that does from the Deleuzean perspective is it opens up to the possibility of novelty at every turn. And then I think maybe we could even say now kind of referring back to Healy is that the concern with certain tendencies within this like unassumed virtue of nuance is that we're foreclosed from those possibilities and therefore it leads to like this kind of serial repetition or reproduction of the same of the sameness and because of that it leads to like uninteresting theory you're not actually able to um, inventively address emerging issues or you're not able to actually um, creatively consider things anew and afresh despite your all your claims to nuance that would suggest the contrary you know so and then the last one is that there's like a, a strategic uh limit that it actually makes it so that there's not much practical import for the field and i think that's partly because it's bad and uninteresting right so people don't really give a shit too much about it and so i do think that there's something interesting there um from that threefold that makes me kind of that kind of opens up the aperture on how i read the article yeah so this is this gets to something i'm a little bit confused about, possibly a little bit miffed about, especially when it comes to the interesting stuff. So I think it's absolutely on point, the um, the, the first part of that argument, that the kind of tyranny of nuance leads to bad theory. It's actually anti-theoretical in its orientation, he says at one point. And that seems to me absolutely true. Like you see this even in philosophy, where people try to pare down the strength of their claims by... Um, admitting that it's just one perspective and that's just like obviously a much bigger perspective that has all these other points of view is going to be necessary to adjudicate blah 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 and it's like no and you are trained you're trained in this language as you study as you to anticipate up, objections right you know? some reviewer like, writes yeah that's right to constant to constantly hedging yeah and and the more you're in it like I've actually started to really feel it recently and it feels really stifling like because you're constantly just hedging any possible thing that somebody's going to say and bring up and that I think stifles creative thinking. So but anyway, yeah, that's it is something that's like endemic within academia, not necessarily like science or sociology or philosophy or something like that if it if it exists, but it's something within the academic peer review system. That kind of tends yeah, to and it's it's anti-theoretical because anytime this actually connects pretty well with some of the Marcus Gabriel that we read seventy years ago or whenever it was um, about there not being a totalizable <laughs> view on the world. Every every claim is perspectival, but not in like the skeptical kind of Nietzschean sense, but in the sense of like from a perspective, and it's never going to be a total picture even of the things in that world. 
um, that it's about. And that mm. that struck me as very true in a way of, of mitigating the the skeptical worries of like the Nietzsche and while also avoiding the pitfalls of like logical positivism and stuff like that. Um, and I took take that with me. And I think it's kind of connected here because the the nuance of the fine grain is anti-theoretical in this sense. And that abstraction of its essence means leaving something out. Like it's abstraction as a as a practice is constituted by leaving certain things out strategically leaving certain things out, right, um, to make the claim. And the key about good use of abstraction is that you strategically and knowingly um, leave things out. Like you do it in a, in a particular way and you know that you're doing it um, to make better claims about the world. That's just all claims are like that. And so we're just doing it in a much more strategic way when you're doing theoretical abstraction, right? And so to act like you could somehow... Mm. Um, avoid doing that just means you're not really doing theory anymore and you're not even having the virtues of a theory at that point. And that, that strikes me as very right. Now, my worry then is, and it's unclear to me what he actually thinks here, because at one point he quotes um, uh, some sociologist who says, like, said something about how we care more about theories being interesting than true. Um and then mm-hmm. he he like waxes poetic on that for a moment, and then he goes back and says, "But of course, truth is the most important thing, not interestingness." And so I was like, "Well, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that that is coherent." But mm-hmm. it seems to me like it doesn't ultimately matter, other than strategically, like for the for institutionalized purposes, and like political purposes, social purposes, that a theory be interesting or be found interesting. I should say um, that's important for some reasons, but. theories, if they're true, will be interesting. Like, I guess I just have enough faith to think that that's going to happen because I'm enough of a Kantian to think that, that human reason seeks out ultimate grounds of things. And so if your theory is getting towards ultimate grounds of things, then it's going to be interesting, like of necessity. Um, so it doesn't seem to me like interestingness is a virtue. And I've, I've had a, I should say a minute, like years ago on the idea of interestingness being this ground level virtue. It's not, not that being interesting is bad. Certainly not. It's a it's like a, a sign or a heuristic um, for figuring out the things that are good or true or beautiful or whatever. Um, but I don't think it's like a ground level virtue um, of a theory that it'd be interesting. It doesn't explain much about the theory that it's interesting. That's just like a first glance that you take at something before you really understand what's good about it. It's kind of what I think. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, is he kind of cutting off his nose to spite his face here? And that really what's happening is nuance of the, of the kinds that he's talking about, especially the fine grain nuance, it's bad because it's just not getting to truth. It's not a good way of getting to truth. It's actually kind of anti-truth because it's anti-theoretical and some truths are theoretical, <laughs> right? It's like if reality is a certain way and then our methods are are sort of structured so as to be poor at discovering reality, then they're bad methods. It doesn't really matter that they're interesting. I think they're going to be uninteresting because they're bad. But that's just like a, that's just sort of a, um, an aesthetic thing about the theory that doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is that theories are true, or at least give us some window into truth. And of course, truth itself, as, I've, as we've said, is perspectival. And so it's not totalizing. Um, so we avoid the pitfalls of of that sort of dynamic. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of trailing off here, but what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I'm. I'm still. I'm still thinking about the relationship between like truth 
true true theory and interesting theory. And I kind of wonder also if there isn't something that needs to be discussed about how oftentimes what makes something interesting is the context that values certain things. So like uh like, okay, so like there was an article that came out the other day that caused a little bit of a shitstorm um, on Twitter, right? Or just elsewhere by Sam Adler Bell about like the language of wokeness or something like that. Did you catch any I don't of that think so, flack? No. No, not, not, not did you catch any of the <laughs> flack, but did you catch no. any of it? <laughs> you weren't implicated. <laughs> um, but yeah, but basically. Basically, I mean, it was like a little thought piece thing and um, the the article was meh, whatever. Um, you know, just another kind of like bemoaning about wokeness from, from someone who, um, you know, is a little bit more on like the materialist kind of like structural side of concerning and being like, you know, it's about solidarity and yada, yada, yada kind of shit. Um, you probably could rewrite the article just by understanding the broad themes of it, right? Like it, it wasn't, it wasn't that interesting, I didn't think, but um, the, there was like a bunch of like responses to it that were critiquing it, not necessarily because of its merits, although partly that, but also, and, and they really focused on like in the contemporary political and, and cultural climate, this type of argument does a disservice because this isn't the time for drawing dividing lines. We need to figure bridges, kind of kind of lo uh, logic right and it made me think that like what they were essentially saying is and a lot of them i think misread the article because they were so quick at being like hey that's just not we're not in a time period where these types of arguments are interesting for us and i think that that maybe we could even say i mean i think some of them were also saying something more than just it wasn't interesting right so i don't want to just reduce the critiques to that but i do think there was something about that like what is of interest to um, the people who were critiquing him is more that like, hey, we, we live in a world that is defined by the rise of like neo-fascism neo and um, where white supremacy is becoming, uh, taking more of a hold. And so identity issues, uh, you know, trans people are being targeted and there's all this shit about like groomers and stuff like that. There were people that were the fucking Patriot Front were just targeting a pride, uh, pride march in fucking Idaho last week. So it's like, this isn't the time for these types of takedowns because it falls into like right-wing rhetoric was a, a lot of the argument, right? And I wonder if part of that doesn't have to do with like, but the interests of the cultural moment are such and such, therefore for theory to be interesting in that context requires that they are oriented in some way to that larger cultural logic. Essentially what I mean is, is, is does this not mean that there's something about the context that has bearing on what makes something interesting or not? Yeah. And if you think context is part of truth, then you get rid of that distinction, <laughs> right? If all truths are only true in context, uh, yeah. then that's what matters, right? Um, that's sort of the point about rejecting the, the totalization kind of history of logical positivism and construing knowledge, right? So, um, I mean, mm -hmm. I read the piece, so I can't really say it, but my guess would be when people are making this distinction between, or making this, this claim that like, you know, maybe it's true, but it's not interesting because the context of the utterance or whatever. Really, I mean, that's just like a, I think it's just kind of a false distinction, maybe a lazy distinction. And really what we should be saying is, no, it's not even true. Like the the role that this speech act is playing in the dialectic isn't revealing of truth. And if you see 
a claim or a set of claims in like an article or an essay, and it's it's doing something, right? It's a you know speech um, speech acts are acts; they're things that you do, and um, we should construe mm. them thusly. Then that means that um, that speech act is not playing a role in the dialectic as it exists in this moment um, in a way that's revealing of any truth, right? And that's what's important about it. Um, mm. That's what's importantly wrong about it, I guess, would be the idea. So, yeah, I mean, do you think do you do you think that there's a tendency to maybe reduce truth to the interesting in certain like maybe cultural discussions? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely this push to like it's not important to say true things. It's important to say things that will get the appropriate outcomes. And that's sort of the I'm not saying the people who are yeah. making that claim about this article were doing that, but that's sort of the the negative side of that. And it certainly happens, right? It's this very utilitarian kind of like, are you saying the right things that will get the outcomes that we want? And it's like, bro, I'm like on Twitter. Nobody gives a shit about this, right? <laughs> um, mm. I mean, and even if you were like a super, super important person, like trying to tailor all of what you say to produce the causal outcomes in, in the, you know, mind computers of individuals who read it or hear it, that's just such a poisoned way of thinking about dialectic, um, it's much better to think about giving and asking for reasons and not be worried so much about the outcomes of what you say. If you could even know those things in the first place, which of course you can't, right? Um, just see yeah. the actions of like the CDC over the past three years, if you want a good example of why trying to tailor everything you say, all of your knowledge claims to the what it will produce in the behaviors of individuals to see how uh, terrible that uh, methodology is. So yeah, there's it's a very deflated notion of what of what truth is. I think in in people's minds when they yeah, I wonder. There's like um, it could it could be argued, and it has by some that uh that 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 investigations into truth have been subsumed under investigations into ethics, right? I mean, obviously, like someone like Levinas is very clear about this. The philosophy is ethics, right? But you get this even with someone like Schopenhauer, um, where where what's where what's most valuable isn't truth per se, like it would have been in like the kind of big metaphysical projects of somebody like Hegel and Kant and um, prior to that. But but that what matters is that truth is subsumed to uh, like technocratic reasonings for how we ought to live, right? And and what I wonder is if that is a tendency that might happen, and especially when you get like, then you get like on the other side of the postmodern critiques of metaphysics, then you especially get like a, a sort of um, uh, a, de-emphasis, a de-emphasis on the value of truth in itself as something that is important for like philosophical reasoning, um, cultural values, but even maybe more importantly, even in the construction of ethics and and politics and things like that. Right. Um, because everything is like presumed to, or or is like rooted in, in an instrumental logic or a technological logic or, or something along those lines. And I wonder if, if with like postmodern skepticism, it's almost like we, we can't, it's very difficult for us to like go back now to just doing metaphysics or it's go it's difficult for us to go back to doing these larger um, systemic projects because for us what really matters is 
is we are warring against a hegemon that is trying to enclose everything, whether that hegemon be in the name of development or progress or, um, you know, liberal capitalism or something along those lines. And so because of that, we are trying to like fracture from this massive isomorphic tendency to enclose all things, right? And so it's like, yeah, you get the, the kind of like Marxian, like counter hegemonic project that you might get um, with 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 some persuasions in there. Um, but nevertheless, it's still really difficult to do those types of projects because we just don't believe in them anymore, you know? And so it's almost like this tendency towards nuance seems to be a symptom of a fracturing of the pursuits of truth from the kind of grand age of metaphysical systemic projects. Yeah, know? that's really good, dude. That's, that's got me thinking about so many things. Like, I think that truth and, and the good are strongly integrated. I mean, I don't know that you can be in Plato's discipline if you don't think to some degree that's the case. <laughs> um, but at the same time, integrated in a very different way than the kind that you're um, explaining this sort of phenomenon is, right? So you, you talked about it as truth is being subsumed into ethics in a certain way. But then you also said truth subsumed into like this technological rationality. There's an important distinction between those two things, I think. Not necessarily in how they're, the way that those concepts are, or those terms are used, but the way, what they actually represent. And the difference is, Technological rationality is not an ethics. It's a theory about what to do, not what one ought to do. And that may sound like the same mm. thing, but I think it's important. It's why a theory like utilitarianism, which is the ultimate application of technological rationality to the domain of morality, is that it's not really an ethics because it's not really about values in the end. There's usually some sort of backdrop of preference satisfaction theory or maybe like a contract social contractarianism at the root of it to try and explain the the, mm. the ground of the technological rationality if such a thing is even countenanced at all right rights-based stuff and rights being the ground and they're they're inexplicable or only explained as the kind of things necessary for a society to function at all in the kind of contractarian way and that's really a deflationary notion of ethics so much so that i'm not sure it's even properly called ethics. It's more just like practical reasoning, simpliciter, of which ethics is a species, and it, that, mm. that species is removed <laughs> from these kinds of theories. So they, they end up not having this really kind of narrow integration of the true and the good in that, yeah, the point of things is to get towards the good, some contractarian or preference satisfaction theory in the background doing the work there, the explanatory work there. So was true in some like kind of quasi-pragmatist way. It's just whatever gets us to that preference satisfaction stuff or whatever, right? Um, and that's just horrible <laughs> on both the, the the ethics side and the, the epistemology and truth side, right? Whereas a much better integration would be something like it's really important to do what's right, that you do it in some sense through knowing what's true, Right? Um, and you don't necessarily have to know it in some like systematizing philosophical, super abstract way, although it'd be nice if you could do that too. Um, but like a really important <laughs> part of what's good is that it's true. Like it really matters that, that people have value 
and that um, that's true, and that's an important point. And like believing that and knowing that is an important throughput into doing what's right. Like if you do what's right for some other reason, then it's not quite the same, <laughs> right? Even if the outcomes are the same, that's like a classic, you know, rejection of utilitarianism right there. Um, so yeah, that integration mm. seems really important between the true and the good, and not in this deflationary sort of uh, like purely functional throughput sort of way. And so when people are saying stuff like, yeah, we just need to cert- say the certain things that matter right now to get the outcomes that we want. And anything that doesn't contribute to the discourse in that way is therefore bad or untrue. That's just like the worst kind of pragmatism. Um, and that's not even, the, like the American pragmatists today don't represent anything like that. So I'm not, I'm not trying to conflate those at all. Um, that's a kind of pragmatism that seems to me like the death of, the death of theory and of ethics at the same time. Like it's killing them both. Mm. Yeah, I wonder, and I and I wonder if there's a tendency to think in that way accidentally, right? Like maybe maybe a lot of us think we're doing ethics when we're mm-hmm. not doing ethics in 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 the kind of like more robust sense, and it's because of the stranglehold of um, of certain forms of reason and rationality that we are immersed in. And so it really kind of cuts us off from those capacities towards deeper ethical thinking, whatever that might look like, however that might proceed. And um, I mean, this kind of reminds me of like, you know, when Zizek says, you know, don't do and think sort of thing. Mm. I, I think we could almost say that that could be leveled against like certain forms of thought, that certain forms of thought are already entrapped by the doing. You know, this constant needing to do, 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 which is which is part of that kind of like technocratic or I'm sorry, uh, technological logic. Um, and uh, and 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 I wonder if that that is part of I mean, I, I do think that it's part of a sort of um, uh, influence or or um, what's the word I'm looking for? A sort of like. <sighs> Yeah, we'll just say influence of um, a certain type of abstract thinking that is tied to compulsive forms of serial rationality under capitalism. And I think I think that because it becomes just so ubiquitous, you you get caught up in 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 that tendency of thinking, right? And so it's very difficult to think otherwise then. And so even maybe when we're th- we think we're doing something productive, maybe we're not actually engaging in a lot of um, productive thinking and that there, it, this requires something a lot more intensive so that we can kind of break from that, you know, perpetual motion machine as it's sometimes called. Yeah, you were you know? just talking about how there are these norms on how to write papers in such a nuanced way and hedge against all the risks that you're making in your paper, right? And that's just an example of this technocratic yeah. logic where what you're doing there is not trying to unearth truths about the world. What you're trying to do is get tenure or get published or, you know, whatever, um, which is just a... Ingratiate yourself to the field. Yeah, purely or whatever, yeah. functional, right? And... Uh, obvious uh, sort of quality of capitalism, the socioeconomic system of capitalism, is that you end up seeing individuals, people, as throughputs, as purely functional throughputs um, to achieve some outcome. And even that outcome is itself another throughput 
for some greater outcome. And don't ask me what the end of the goal of that is because there isn't one. <laughs> don't ask that question. Um, and that's just such a diseased way of thinking about things that matter. In fact, it seems to me like it's antithetical to thinking anything matters ultimately, right? Um, just mm. imagine trying to like deal with relationships in a family or in a spousal relationship with amongst close friends in that way, where every time before you think about what you're going to say, you think about, well, what is the likely behavioral outcome, which will follow from this, given the algorithm, the psychological algorithm that I have access to, and then basing all of your decisions about what to do and say based upon that. Like, not only would that be debilitating and you'd be inhuman for trying to do that, and not only would it be impossible because you just couldn't possibly have enough information to do it, but even if you could, that would be extremely alienating to whoever you're dealing with. Like, they would see you as a non-person <laughs> in a certain important sense. And they'd be right. Like, you're not acting like a person when you're doing that. So they'd be right to be alienated by it, mm. right? Even if you could have all the knowledge in the world that would let you produce an effective algorithm. Like, you're not treating them like a person when you do that. So, yeah, it, it definitely, the, the capitalist logic we're talking about infects social relations in a way that's really diseased, and it happens at the institutional levels, like in the university and, and et cetera. And I think it affects the interpersonal level too. I, I talk to students all the time who start thinking well, this it way does. about relationships. Because you are, you're constantly hedging, right? Like with, with your, like I'm going to keep referring to the work of Michelle Fair, who I think has really kind of impacted my thought a lot on how we understand like the, the kind of contemporary sociopolitical, sociocultural moment. Um, when he talks about how basically we're just portfolio managers who have these like assets in our portfolios that we're, um, that we're putting on a market so that we can court further investment, you know, and we do that with like our LinkedIn profile. We do it with uh, our dating profiles. We do it with our Twitter bios and with our Instagram bios and with whatever the fuck else, our personal websites. And, um, and we start wearing our assets as like our outward facing personas. Um, and I think when we're doing that is we're constantly shifting our own diversified portfolios because we are constantly hedging, right? And we are trying to anticipate so that we can make sure that um, we either don't alienate somebody so that we say the right thing so that we can find our place. Now, I do think that there's also a sense in which that's not like some universal thing because I, I, I do think there's a sense in which we do that within contexts, right? Like there does seem to be a sense in which we're doing that within like I'm trying to court investment from certain types of people. You know what I mean? Um, so it's not it's like it's it's not just like an abstract. I'm just trying to court investment from everybody. Although some people are probably like that, right? Like if you're somebody like me who's grew up with a tendency to like want to be liked by a lot of people, then yeah, you might run into that, and it would it will be debilitating because it makes it so that you aren't empowered and you don't have a sense of autonomy, but you're constantly trying to measure yourself against other and. Uh, anticipated expectations of other people, right? And so it's like your your social orientation is built on expectations about expectations, right? Which is a very sort of financialized logic. As a matter of fact, Elena Esposito writes about this in her book, The Future of Futures. She says that is the sort of inherent logic of the derivative, right? That's what it. That's what the primary concern is. And this goes back to you know Keynes's beauty contest from uh, from the general yeah, theory, I was just thinking that too. where yeah. it's kind of like it's not. Yeah, it's it's 
It's about like this fancy that could shift at any time, which means that your work as the one who is trying to uh, put forth your asset never ends because you have to be aware of the shifting tides and cultural changes and you have to be aware of tastes and fashions and what's hot and what's not. And when you live in a world where that stuff changes so quickly and so much, I think it does incapacitate you and it does debilitate you because you can never be caught up with the shifting sea changes and you can never be sure of what it is that's going to qualify you or disqualify you for emotional uh, or even financial investment. And so you're constantly having, having to diversify, but it's always this outward activity, right? So it's about like this, this externalization of yourself, which means you really sort of miss out on like the cultivation of the self and the cultivation of um, the pursuits of things because they're good for their own sake, because you're just constantly outward focused, right? And I think, I think that because that leads toward, to, towards a tendency towards like incapacitation, I think that really produces like it's a state of anxiety. Yeah. And I think, I, and I don't think it's, it's too abstract for me to say that at the individual level, you experience that anxiety, but then also that there's a sense in which there's like a social anxiety that that produces, right? That is like this kind of like almost, um, organic consciousness of anxiety because we live in a milieu where the whole, but also the parts are, um, infected by this, this anxious compulsive tendency. Yeah. Amen, dude. Like that's, that's the plague of anxiety, especially among younger people is that they're existing in a social system where that, where this is perpetuated. And it's, I think there's, there's a dual dynamic there. One is the anxiety of just trying to internalize the whole like expectations of expectations model, which is impossible to do. And so you fail at that task necessarily. And thus, or you know, consider yourself a failure for continuing to to not succeed in that in that venture. But then also, there's the anxiety of feeling like nothing matters. Like if you're constantly bombarded with a system that tells you nothing really matters in the end, or at least not to focus on that at all. And so you're never you never find yourself involved um, with intrinsically meaningful experiences, or at least not thinking of them that way, thinking them of them as throughputs to something else then that's, it's kind of anti, it's not treating yourself or others like a person. And you're going to feel alienated um, from yourself and from others when that happens. And that's, I th whenever you talk to young people, that seems to be the dynamic at play is that they feel like they don't have intrinsically meaningful experiences. Uh, I mean, people like laugh at the fact that young people are having less sex than they've, than young people have had in like recorded history or whatever. I'm like, that's, a big part of it amongst other sorts of, you know, intrinsically meaningful experiences. Um, it's sort of been like drained out of people to think of things that way. And I guess we're getting back to like the classic Austin, well, also, like go into the like, woods and stay in a cabin and divorce yourself entirely from mm -hmm. that, from that technological rationality system and, and just have only intrinsically meaningful experience or we'll have experiences that only could matter if they are intrinsically <laughs> meaningful. Right. <laughs> like go fish, I guess yeah. fishing might be bad I don't know it's not a good example but like walk in the woods like there's no reason to do that unless it's intrinsically meaningful read a book and don't talk to anybody else about it at first at least like that can only matter if it's intrinsically meaningful right <laughs> mm. go for a swim in the ocean climb a mountain yeah. have a beer with a friend yeah. I'm, I'm listing off yeah. all the intrinsically meaningful experiences and, and that I, I know of <laughs> 
<laughs> to you play, play, play yeah, basketball say, on a Friday go to the park and shoot hoops <laughs> these, these are all the intrinsically meaningful experiences. I, I wonder we we talk so much in like culture about like um about like consumption anxiety and stuff like that and how like people are people are tired and burnt out you know because of like the systems of exchange that we're engaged in that are that are pulling our libidinal investments and stuff like that. And I think that's absolutely true. But I wonder if there's another angle to this that I maybe I just don't see it discussed as much. But it's precisely this one that you're talking about now. That So like, for example, the, the decreased desire for sex could be viewed as like a, well, our libidinal investments are so, um, are, are so dispersed because of consumer capitalism and because of data and because of gamification and because of our like external um libidinal sex organs are just plugged into like the capitalist matrix and so it's like our desire for like physical like grounded interaction is um is sapped you know that vitality is sapped and that's partly true but what i also wonder is if, if there isn't a sense in which this anxiety because of the hedging because of constantly needing to meet other people's experiences, it creates an, a sense in which we're always going to be a disappointment, right? So it's like the – you almost have to have like a naive hubris to just be like, I, I <laughs> you know, because now – in this day and age, it's like, but wait, my body's not good enough. I don't have enough money. What if they laugh at me? Wait a second. They might end up being like a toxic person. Um, you know, the, 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 the future is precarious. So like, why am I going to invest in this? And even though those things might not be conscious, like you don't like get ready for a date and you're not sitting. I mean, maybe some people are thinking about some of these <laughs> things, but it's not like you're listing all of the reasons why you have to hedge yourself, but it's more kind of like a, a habituated tendency. And so what it does is it just decreases your potency, right? Like I, I did a video on my YouTube channel like two years ago, a year and a half ago, something like that. And it was just like I was walking through this town or this little neighborhood where I was – where I next to where I lived in one of the suburbs here in Sydney. And it was this cool like kind of like – like kind of like gentrified – you know, it's got some cool bars and, and um, you know, kind of like – artsy kind of funky area and I had like this overwhelming like this is like the typical place where I like would thrive right but I had like this overwhelming sense that I didn't belong and it was really interesting and I, and I related it to a conversation that I had with Darius friend of the show who was on the show um, a long time ago who's a philosopher who Darius was kind of like you know the fact that you as an American feel like you should belong is kind of a very interesting <laughs> phenomenon right it's a very kind of he called it like a very um, American phenomenon right where like that you just should belong anywhere you go and as somebody who has traveled a lot and who loves to travel on his own I do feel like I can belong anywhere right as long as I got like a book and a place I can sit down I I have very rarely felt like I didn't belong somewhere, right? Which is a very sort of privileged position to be in, to feel like I can just walk through a neighborhood and feel like, cool, I can, I can be here. Like I can, I can get here. And I have had a couple of experiences in my life where I felt like unwelcomed or unwanted, but, but for the most part, you know, especially in like middle class yuppie neighborhoods or even like gentrified hipstery neighborhoods, I mean, which is starting to take over our cities like all of those places are right. It's making it so that people like me can feel like they belong right wherever they go. 
But nevertheless, like I had this moment in that, that, that one day that I was walking that I didn't belong. And it just kind of allowed me to sort of like linger on this for a little bit. Like there's a potency that I derive, like an actual, like, like I feel alive and I feel energetic when I can walk through a neighborhood and be like, there's possibility <laughs> here right? There's possibility I'm going to meet somebody cool. There's possibility I'm going to find a cool store. There's possibility I'm going to find a table that I can sit at and order a coffee and read some book and have thoughts and like important thoughts. <laughs> so the possibility is that like, what could happen? Like, could I revolutionize a field of discourse by sitting down, you know, like it's like this endless manifest destiny of terrain, like possible terrain that I can explore, you know, and that makes you feel vital and it makes you feel potent. And then kind of tying this to another discussion I had with my buddy, Scott, friend of the show. What up, Scott, who was one time um, talking about how like when you're in a position of like financial precarity and you're poor, like it, it like it makes you not even want to go out and like meet people and go out and be involved in events because you're kind of like, I'm just not in the game, you know, and like I'm not I'm not vital in that game. And I feel like, like, I get that, you know, like there's a sense in which like, if you don't feel vital because you're not empowered by your capacity to meet obligations, which is like what liquidity is, right? Or, or you can think of what money is. Money is a capacity to meet obligations. It's, you know, especially if you believe in theory of credit money, which I do. Um, but like, if you don't have that capacity, then you are impotent in the literal sense. And then now tying that down to like libidinal desire, like, you would feel impotent. You would feel less capacitated. You would feel less potent, less vital to want to go out and meet people and have sex or have exciting uh, interactions or boldly invest yourself in a creative project because it just doesn't feel like the potential and the possibilities are there. And so from the outset, your expectations on expectations are diminished. So you don't invest in the same way as if you're somebody who is very potent. And then the last thing I'm going to say, because this is all over the place, this also ties into the research of somebody uh, named Amin Saman, who writes about like the two different structures of feeling for the asset rich and the asset poor. And the asset rich are those who find the thrill and exhilaration of um, investing to be really potent in driving them because it's all about excitement. And I think it fits into this, right? Like that there's like a potential that they have. Uh, displayed before them and they don't know, but it's going to be good. You know, they don't know where it's going to go, but it's going to be good. Whereas the asset poor are just burdened by their debt relations, right? And for them, their, their obligations can never be met because the promise might be for settlement, but all they ever get is like deferral of satisfaction or deferral of whatever it is that was promised. And so I think there's something in that as well that might be producing this larger sense of, of anxiety. So, yeah. And I don't know how this fits to fuck nuance, but I'm sure it <laughs> yeah, does. Yeah, we have the reservation, but that's part of the course. So I'm not surprised. Um, yeah. Like, oh, one thing I want to say to that is just, you know, there's the the sort of slightly more optimistic hypothesis you were talking about where our libidinal um, sort of potencies are dispersed uh, in such a way that, you know, physical interaction with people is, is no longer like necessary to satisfy them or whatever. The, the classic, like, I'd rather play video games than have sex thing that some people point to. It's like, yeah, some people say that, but then you ask them for their own evaluation of, of like their state of being and they're like, oh, it sucks. <laughs> right. So even if they don't connect the fact that their desire to play video games being stronger than their desire to be with people, whether it's sexual or otherwise, like they might not realize that 
that's a warped desire or that somehow that like their, their desiring system has been broken and their, their ability to reflect on it appropriately and correctly has been broken. Like they may not realize that, but that's what's happening. Right. Cause then they wouldn't like, if we just said, yeah, like we stopped having sex and we stopped like hanging out in person, but this is awesome. Like, yeah, we all said that the first two weeks of COVID, but no one says that now. <laughs> right. So yeah, well, and, and like, what do video, what do video games offer if not endless possibility, right? Like, it's, it's, you are the most potent motherfucking thing because you just keep going and you keep going and there's more and there's another journey. You, like, we don't make video games about like somebody who is impotent. All of the figures that you follow, like fucking God of War is a great game, but you are this awesome fucking vital fucking superhero, essentially, you know? So it's like, in a world that incapacitates you and tends towards impotency because of indecision and uncertainty and the constant need to hedge and all this other shit, the world of video games is great because it's the opposite of that. It's no, actually, you have full capacity. Yeah, it depends on the video game though, right? Because I'm thinking like, um, you think about God of War as an example, or games like that that provide narr- not just narrative, but but specifically narrative experiences that are like temporal, right? They're temporally limited. Um, that's not really all that all that different from like reading a book, right? Um, nobody reads a book for sixteen hours in a day. I guess some people probably do that, but like regularly, that would be <laughs> that would be a lot. There are some video games. There are lots of video games that involve social interaction, so they're not being considered here, right? But there are some kinds of uh, video games like that where it's kind of a mindless activity. In fact, the function of it is to be mindless. Right. And that's totally fine mm. um, in some cases, but sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it is a symptom of a kind of broken, like a kind of broken person in a certain way, right? Where this desire for endless, repeatable sameness um, becomes a sort of palliative. And that doesn't mean they're bad or anything. Of course not. But it means that something's kind of broken in a person in the same way there's mm. other ways. And I mean, you could, sex itself could be that. For some people who are dealing with like sex addiction or they view sex as um, some means for something else, not not itself an intrinsically meaningful activity, right? So anything could be that, right? It's not just Mm. video games. But that's just like an example of the kind of thing that speaks to the sort of broken, the way that the the technological system of rationality that we're talking about can break a person when they become fully sort of instantiated in it or they fully internalize it in their way of thinking about things that matter to them. And I think we're all that way. It's not like a symptom like of a vicious person or something. That's just the fact that we're mm. all um, like interpolated in that way, living under late capitalism. And so we should expect to find symptoms of that in all of our lives. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there a way to wrap this up and tie this back to the article? Or do we just say, yeah, that's just what happened. We we went off on one. Yeah, I mean that seems to be part of the point, right? We were we weren't shy of using abstraction here. We weren't being anti-theoretical. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I will say so. We'll we'll post. I, I I tweeted out the article. You can find it. It's open access. So if you just Google Kieran Healy, it's K I E R A N H E A L Y, and then fuck nuance, you'll find it. Um, it is, uh, open access so you can check it out, give it a read. It's pretty accessible, but, um, yeah, it, 
definitely something that's interesting to think about. And I think it's interesting, too, because he's in the discipline of sociology um, and he's talking about this tendency towards nuance. I think it's really interesting in a field like philosophy where I think it absolutely like nuance is something that is prized. It is something that is valued. Um, and I wonder if there's a way to kind of write a rebuttal to this that's kind of like in defense of nuance that would that would be like a really nuanced, um, <laughs> a nuanced sort of like tiptoeing tiptoeing around and then through some of the critiques he levels, but then to suggest why like nuance is actually part of good theory, interesting theory, and even like strategically useful theory. So I, I, I do like, I take his point and I think there's something important there, but at the same time, I also wonder if there's a way to kind of um, modify certain things to think about how it is that nuance does have import. So. Yeah. I think he even leaves room for that in saying that it's, it's, it's a, a certain, like cultural, like cultural within the the culture of sociology, the academic discipline version of nuance. That's the problem, not nuance itself as like a yeah, like actually existing nuance, yeah. as he calls it, with capital yeah, exactly. letters. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, well, let's go ahead and wrap that main segment up there and close this show out with our sticky yeah, yeah. leaves. So for those who don't know, the sticky leaves is the segment of the podcast where one of us talks about whatever it is that's granting us meaning in a potentially meaningless world. So Austin, do you have any intrinsically meaningful activities to share with us this week? Um, yeah, I, you know, I've always got some intrinsically meaningful activities to, to share. Um, at the moment, I just want to talk about a book that I recently picked up that is pretty cool. And it's by a really well-known British director, theater, theater director, but he's also done some films and stuff like that, but really, you know, made his name in the theater. Um, but so his name is Peter Brook and the book is called Empty Space. And um, the thing that's so interesting is that – so Peter Brook makes this distinction, and I like this distinction, between different types of theater. Um, and I'm, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but it's uh, like uh, deadly theater, holy theater. I can't remember the third one and then like immediate theater, right? And the thing that's interesting is he says that like most theater is just bad theater, right? He talks about it in, in the context of deadly theater. Um, and he's like, that's like the majority of it. Like, you know, like 80% of the theater you go see. A lot of the culturally kind of popular stuff and um, a lot of the stuff that gets produced, you know, in mass or that gets marketed in mass and stuff like that. And it's not great. Um, and I think we can kind of like fix this. I like this, like this way of thinking about this because I think it also fits into like artistic media more generally, right? We could think about it in, with regard to TV shows and film and, and other things. But that like the, most of the stuff that gets made is just like, it's just not good, right? It's just really not that good. Doesn't mean it can't be entertaining. Doesn't mean it can't like, if you want to just tune out for a little bit. Like recently, like my partner and I watched uh, the Maze Runner trilogy. Have you seen those uh, three? No, but I'm aware of them. Yeah. Like the first one was really kind of cool and enjoyable and like whatever. It's like this, you know, YA kind of plot, you know, dystopian world thing. And, um, uh, but the first one was, you know, pretty all right. Like we enjoyed it. And then the second two were just not, they just were not very good at all. Like just like really just quite bad actually. Right. But, um, like even the first one wasn't like what I would call great. So it would probably fit within that. Like, yeah, it's like in that 80% or whatever. This is not that great, you know? And then there's like, and then there's like theater he talks about that is good. That's like, that's it, really good, 
right? You come out of there, it's well-written, it's well-performed, it's well-staged, um, costumes were great, you know, whatever. Or if it's just like something basic, you know, because his whole point is that you give me an empty space and I can turn it into a stage sort of thing. Um, like even if it's just a room and people are just wearing like fucking, you know, everyday street clothes or something like that and they just do something like it can be stellar right um there's there's something about that and um i think we think that with like films too there's just like it can be really good right like there's a lot of like really good films like i watched one last night that i would say is really or not last night the night before that's really good i watched the square by ruben oh Austin. yeah i haven't Have seen, seen it yet but i've wanted to watch it for so long yeah so for people who are listening it's um this the same guy that did uh force majeure which i loved um, and the square won the Palme d'Or in 2017. So I'd been meaning to catch up on, on some of my, uh, on some of my international cinema and I watched it on movie as a matter of fact, former sponsor of the show. Um, and, uh, or a sponsor of the show, I guess I should say, although they're not sponsoring this episode. So how does that work? <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. So on movie, movie's still great. Like just, just cause they're not paying us for this episode. doesn't mean they're still not fucking great. They're great. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I watched it on, on movie and, uh, it's great. It's like really good. Right. Um, and so it would be in like that next tier. That's like, it's obviously not bad and it's really, really fucking good. It's thought provoking. It's interesting. It's well acted. It's well crafted, whatever. And I've seen a lot of theater as well. That's in that, that like, man, it's in fucking good. Right. It's good. And then Peter Brooks says, but then there's like this other like domain that is just fucking transcendent right? Where it just, it changes you. It, 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 there's, it, and it's like a small percentage. It's like two or 3% of the theater that does that. Right. And it is just absolutely, uh, it, it is enrapturing. Right. And I, I think, I don't know if there are, if we can say that there are films that, um, like are objectively enrapturing, but I can definitely say that I've had experiences where I would say that, 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 that experience in that cinema or watching that film was just something transcendent. I've had it in the theater. I've had it in certain like, like, um, live performance experiences. I know you and I talked about that too. Like where you talk about what was the concert that you saw that was in like the caves oh, yeah, or God whatever you black just recently. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, like maybe that was for you. Like this, just this enrapturing type of, uh, type of performance. But, um, Anyway, um, yeah, uh, I've just been thinking a lot about that and it, what it does is it makes me want to like seek out like fucking enrapturing theater and film and stuff like that. And I, I've noticed this about myself, Troy, I'm starting to become less and less patient with bullshit <laughs> and it's not like, it's not like it's like all of a sudden I still don't entertain it at all, but I definitely am becoming less and less patient with that stuff. And I think it's just because, you know, getting a little bit older and then starting to just become more secure in like who I am and what I want, which is like coming out of all that shit that we were just talking about previously. Like I grew up in a world where I was constantly trying to please everybody, you know, partly because of like personal family history and also partly because of where I grew up. Right. Um, and because of other cultural impact uh, or influences on us. So for me, like. Like, I think I'm starting to settle a little bit more into, oh, I actually dislike certain things and I like certain things. Um, and it's okay to just like put your foot down and be like, no, like that's just stupid or that's bad behavior or that's unacceptable or that's bad this art so or whatever. And it is okay. <laughs> what the, I know. Well, here's the thing. So as soon as I say stuff like this, then I'll have a moment where I'm like, but actually <laughs> I think it's okay to like just Both like everything. <laughs> 
yeah yeah i mean are you, are you both in really um but uh but yeah yeah so anyway i i do think that like despite all of that i can say that what i want more of is i want more of that like transcendent stuff you know and uh i'm actually bummed because my partner and i have we've had two different shows that we were supposed to go to two live theater shows over the past couple months here in Sydney that we had tickets for that we were even one of them we were even at the theater and as we walked up they were like we're sorry the show got canceled because of covid and we were like no <laughs> um you know that performance got canceled because of covid and then we were just supposed to go see it's called city of gold i think um at the sydney theater company if anyone out there is australian and knows what i'm talking about it was this show that was just getting rave reviews like cannot miss it must see sort of thing and it's a it's a kind of show that's like i think it's had a, a few runs and this is like the last run and we finally got tickets to go on closing on closing day we were going to the matinee and uh, we got an email or a text message that morning that was like due to covid COVID, today's performances are canceled and we were like no <laughs> so it was like two two opportunities oh. we're going saturday night to to another show so knock on wood hopefully we get uh we get like a really great experience of some transcendent theater but anyway um but yeah so i i just kind of love that idea i think that's like a really interesting idea that that can like help as a barometer to be like yeah like most of the stuff that's out there is probably it's either shit or fine and that, whatever, like it's fine with consuming material that's both shit and fine, right? And sometimes some of the shit material can actually be really enjoyable. You know, like if you're watching like a fucking asylum film <laughs> or something like that, like snakes on a train or whatever the <laughs> fuck they do, <laughs> um, that can be great. Um, but or like the room or something like that. But um, yeah, it makes me really want to just like seek out fucking great theater. And yeah, I wish there was like a way to know that it would be transcendent beforehand. But that's part of it. Right? Isn't that part of it? That's part yeah. of the experience. You don't know. Yeah. It's a gamble. Wait, so I have somewhere. a question about this this book, Empty Spaces. So you have this this tripartite distinction, right? Between what was it again? Well, it's like it's like well, there's four actually. It's like um deadly theater, holy theater, I can't remember the one, and then like immediate theater. And then like I was just talking about how it kind of fits into like the it's like there's shit and then there's good and then there's like really good and then there's like transcended. Okay. So like at the very least, you have this this category of like meh, which includes like the good and the the fine and the bad, the good and then the transcendent. Yeah. So like what I'm wondering is, is it is it something like because I'm wondering whether we're talking about the the structure of the of the artistic object itself or our experience with it, or some combination that breaks down that distinction. Because I can see like a good art as being like this is this follows the norms of of art as it exists right now really well right like it, it does all the things right in the sense of like you know it's written like a right. david mammoth play or something right um and yeah. the bad stuff just doesn't follow those norms well or only moderately so right and then transcendent stuff like breaks that mold because it like it does something else entirely. Like maybe it breaks the norms, but in a really significant way that changes the norms themselves or something like that. And so our react that would be like the transcendence is in the artistic object itself. And our, our experience is transcendent because we're recognizing a transcendence in the object. Or is it more like this, the experience is transcendent because something unique is happening to you experiencing the object. You see what I'm saying? Well, no, 
Yeah, he means it in an objective sense. And I'll say this. So he was like the um, the head of the Royal Shakespeare Company for a while. So like doing Shakespeare runs the gamut, right? From like really bad all the way to like transcendent. But when you're doing transcendent Shakespeare, where it's like, like holy theater or whatever it is, um, you're not necessarily like reinventing the wheel per se. So it's not like you're doing something that is like, creating new artistic language or something like that, you know? And it's not necessarily like that it has to be, uh, this is the most true and faithful representation of what Shakespeare would have wanted sort of thing either, right? There is something kind of magical, like almost alchemical in in that kind of transcendent, that transcendent thing. But I do think it's something that that he would say is objective, right? Like, like there is such a thing as just bad theater and there is such a thing as theater that is transcendent. <laughs> yeah, I like that because I, I do think there's a, that distinction is an objective one. It's not purely about our reactions to the thing. Like our reactions to the thing are, are either appropriate or inappropriate, right, based upon what's happening objectively. Yeah, I'm not really sure how to couch that exactly because you're right that like one version of transcendent art would be like breaking the norms in a significant way such that it changes the norms themselves. But that's not the only way it can be transcendent. You could do Shakespeare. Mm. It's been done a billion times and you could do it transcendently for some other reason. So it seems like there's probably multiple causal avenues towards that kind of tra- And maybe you can't even define it because then part of transcendence is that it transcends your categories for it, right? It's like sublime in an important way. Yeah. So maybe we can't really define it because defining it would then need to be transcended. I don't know. That's getting a little meta. <laughs> yeah, maybe though. Maybe. Yeah. So anyway, um, good shit. Check out the book if you're interested in like theater studies and stuff like that. You can check it out. Peter Brook. Um, yeah, that's all I got to say. Sweet. Man. That's it. Hopefully the show that we go see on Saturday is fucking legit. And then that'll be my sticky leaves in two weeks. Nice planning. <laughs> Yes, but I'm not going to talk about what the show is now just in case it's not, and then I, I won't talk about it. But I'm hoping. I'm hoping. I think okay. it should be. Yeah, should don't be get good. your expectations too high. Uh, it's too late. Well, knowing but you, yeah. that doesn't seem to be a problem. Yeah. Like, you get pretty hyped for something. That's good. <laughs> that's true. That is true. Sick. All right, well, cool. Let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And uh, thank you, Troy, for talking with me about actually existing nuance and uh, for sharing about Draymond Green's podcast. I have zero desire to listen to it, but (laughs) I am totally going to be down with catching some of the people talking about it, you know? So, but uh, yeah, basketball podcasts, I just don't have time for them to be um, brought into my rotation at the moment. It's good knowing they exist, though. Yeah. Yeah, I do. (laughs) I'm actually, I'm totally cool with it. I'm totally cool with it. I do, I do just wonder though, like part of me has a little bit of that like old school mentality that's like, no man, you, we talk after the championship, you know, like let's not worry about it. But knowing, saying that I would probably have a podcast during, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, we, we would, but we're not, we can't dunk a basketball. That was kind of the point, right? I really hope that Draymond records a podcast like the night they win the championship. That would be. But he's been dunking a, po- a basketball for 20 years. So for him, it's not as exciting. I don't think it would ever lose its exciting, you know? dude. I don't, I don't think so. Especially when you know it's going to go away at some point and you're not going to be able to do it anymore. <laughs> like you have a finite number <laughs> yeah, of Yeah, but it's not going to go away for like another 20 years. Uh, probably sooner than that. Unless you're like Boban Marjanovic. 
at some point you're not going to be yeah, able to for dunk. him it's not fun at some point yeah for him it's not even fun oh yeah for boban yeah i get it definitely isn't isn't fun but he yeah but he's such a true. lovely human that's being true. so it doesn't really matter for him yeah i saw some video the other day of him just like playing ball with a bunch of like kids and just like blocking them all <laughs> They couldn't get a shot up and he's just standing around the hoop just like no 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 oh <laughs> uh, it's so funny yeah yeah it would be so frustrating to play one-on-one with him um anyway uh yeah so if you're out there and you're listening uh, and you want to give us a follow on twitter hit us up owls underscore at underscore dawn email us owls at dawn podcast at gmail.com hit us up on patreon to throw us some support patreon.com slash owls at dawn and fuck nuance or not um and i think that's pretty much everything we have to say isn't that right troy unless there's anything i forgot uh just one thing i can think of what's that that's the